Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to God is Gray, the podcast. Although I, as a Christian, believe that God resides in absolute truth, in black and white, we as people are stuck here on planet Earth contending with the gray. In church, gray areas often cause dissension, anger, and even hate. But on this platform, I welcome open dialogue, variety of opinion, and differing belief systems. God is Gray is meant to teach, inform, and simply trade stories with kindness, love, and mutual respect. If you have a story or perspective to share, please reach me, Brenda Marie Davies, at GodIsGrayXO at gmail.com. To support the cause and be a part of our community, donate to patreon.com slash gray. Now, on to the episode. Hi, beautiful, Hi, beautiful people. people. <laughs> Today we have with us Dr. Hilary McBride. She is a therapist, researcher, speaker, and writer based in Vancouver, BC. I love Canadians. I can't oh. overstate that enough. <laughs> Um, and your most recent book is Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, Learning to Love Ourselves as We Are. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> All of these are true statements. I'm That's not lying true so anybody. far. Yeah. Everything we could, it all checks out. I really wanted to jump into this conversation because a lot of you in the God is Great community, you know, we've been talking about embodiment and a lot of you reach back and talk about insecurities about your body. A lot of you have asked about my struggle with anorexia, which is something I faced in my early 20s. Um, and then Hillary, you had, I believe, a 15-year journey with an eating disorder. I had um, a, a really painful, I mean, I don't know if of an eating disorder struggle, it isn't painful, but it feels painful even when I think about it and talk about it, this relationship with disordered eating that spanned a long chunk of time and it uh, it took many different forms and sometimes people knew that I was struggling and it was really obvious and other times it was deep inside and people didn't know is, is often the case with disordered eating. I have just thought a bit about um, who is and isn't allowed to talk about body image and the way we feel about ourselves. You know, uh, Jamila, is this Jamila Jamil? Is that how you say yeah, it? Yeah. Um, you know, she's incredible. And she's talked about how her voice is sometimes hated on or minimized because she is such a, an extravagantly beautiful woman. And she's really hitting all these markers for what we consider ideal as far as beauty goes. I'm always trying to figure out the best way to clarify that I know we all have different struggles in this area. And I know that I have an ideal body type in certain circles, you know, the privilege of my skin color and just the way that I grew up, you know, there, there's so much privilege around me, but at the same time, you know, I go through a lot of the same things that any other woman goes through and with modeling, 
body image was always on the forefront. And up until right before I got pregnant and lost my modeling jobs, I always had to stay the specific measurement. And if I went outside of that by even you know, a couple pounds, it would be noticeable and they would ask me to lose it again. And then, you know, it's an interesting journey getting pregnant and letting go of, you know, this quote, perfect body that I was accustomed to having for all of these years. So this is the longest way of saying, who do you think, you know, can speak to body positivity and body image? And what have you learned as a researcher about different people's experience with this? Oh, yeah. You, uh, you asked me the money question. This is like my favorite, my favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> so we'll start by, de- by defining the terms a little bit, because most of us are familiar with the concept of body image, but we don't actually know what it means. We use it really loosely, but like, what, what are those words meant to, meant to get to? So we think about body image. It's something that everybody possesses because it's how you intellectually evaluate your appearance. So everybody does that. We just evaluate it in some ways that are more accurate or less accurate. Some ways are more favorable or less favorable, but everybody's holding an image in their mind of how their body and their appearance looks. I want to distinguish that from embodiment because when we think about body image, what we're really saying is we, we have this idea, but we can have an idea about our bodies and not actually know how to live in and be connected to our bodily selves. So I distinguish embodiment from body image by saying that body image is really just the idea or the, the, even in the word, the image, it's, it's the look, it's what we think about what we look like, but embodiment is the experience of being a body engaging with the world around us. So when we look at how we develop a body image, like what, how, what even goes into this way that we evaluate our appearance, we're looking at the social context that we're in. We're looking at things like what do media, parents, and peers say about good bodies and not so good bodies? How are those constructed based on power hierarchies? And how do we fit into those power hierarchies? And we know that from the research about embodiment, that social power, or if we are more like bodies that have been constructed to be ideal, that we're more likely to feel okay about our body, that the evaluation is probably more likely to be positive, or we're less likely to have to think about certain things that other groups of people have to think about. But there's this other thing that happens too, when we have this ideal about a body the closer we get, we think on some level we'll be satisfied, but actually, and you described this really beautifully, like there can be an anxiety that the closer we get to the ideal, the more fear there is of being outside the ideal because of what it's going to cost us socially to lose that. So there's this whole mess of things going on. What's going, what are people saying? The comments people make, what, what people praise us for, And all of that impacting the thoughts that we have inside of our head. But again, we could have a positive body image and have no idea how to pay attention to our hunger cues, have no idea how to, how to put ourselves to bed at night because we know that we're tired or how to speak lovingly to ourselves when we're in pain. So image tends to be the way that we think about our bodies most, but we forget that image is actually just one element of being a body. And there is so much more for us. There's wisdom, there's knowing, there's satisfaction, there's pleasure, there is 
the experience of joy, of longing, all of those things are embodied too. Oh, that's really beautiful that you stated all that because it's all so true. Being in post-pregnancy and being in quarantine, it was interesting to just release my stomach and allow it to grow because that's always been my point of contention and self-hatred. I would always gauge how big is my belly. And it wasn't interesting to re- like to release that. And then to also think of the implication of like, what if I decided to release that forever? Mm-hmm. What if I'm now okay with a little bit of pudge? Are people going to like tease me and say, I never lost the baby weight. And then also realizing that when I was modeling, a lot of times I would be exhausted. My whole body would hurt so badly. I would have had almost nothing to eat and I'd be shaking, but I'd walk past a mirror and be like, flat stomach, all that matters, keep going. <laughs> well, I just think it's, it's so, when something is meaningful to us, even if it's unhealthy, if it's meaningful, we attribute so much more value to it. And we praise ourselves and we get this kind of like dopamine rush when we see ourselves aligning with the things that matter to us. But rarely do we stop and ask ourselves, well, why does that matter to us? And is that good for me on a big picture level? Like, Mm -hmm. okay, it, it mattered to you that your stomach was flat, but how did you even get to the point where that was so important that you could ignore all of these other cues? Like, that's kind of messed up that we live in a world where we would totally divorce ourselves from this bodily knowing that says, feed me, like I am not coping (laughs) and feel good about this body that's disappearing. It's amazing to me that we, yeah, that we do this. And I'm not, please hear me as someone who has also done that. Like I just step back and look at this and think, man, our world is kind of messed up when that's going on. Yeah. So how do we begin breaking down how to actually overcome these things? Because again, I'm speaking from my personal point of view, and I know there's so many different kinds of bodies and there are so many different constructs of what you believe is an ideal body based on where you're from, your living environment, your, your family and what they've imparted to you. I have friends that, you know, obsessively hate different parts of their body. Like your book says, according to what their mother obsessively hated about her own body. Um, or sometimes mothers pass these messages down intentionally. Mm -hmm. They'll be like, don't eat too much. You don't want, you know, what mom has. So how do we even begin deconstructing what we believe is a great, healthy, beautiful body for us. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it, it starts too with deconstructing the sense of individualism that we have, which is really a product of colonization to believe that we are a a unique individual disconnected from the social world around us and from our families it's really like, it's actually just both scientifically and I would say spiritually untrue. And if we can start to see ourselves as, I know this can be uncomfortable to say, but the vessel for our sociocultural messages and the things that were given to us as being most valuable, then we can start to see that maybe the way that we feel about ourselves and our bodies are not the problem, but we are actually really espousing beliefs that we've been told that we needed to, to be good, that all of this, when we peel it all the way back is all of us really wanting to be good and wanting to belong. And when we are handed this message that 
here's a way that you could be good and belong, have a body that looks like so-and-so or this, that will secure your sense of value in this world. That's a really hard thing to untangle ourselves from. So I just want to start by saying, it's so okay that you're feeling this way. Not that it's good, not that I want you to, not that we should stay here, but of course we feel this way. (laughs) For me, a big part of eating disorder recovery was really entangling this story that I had that I was vain or somehow shallow for being preoccupied with my body. And for me, a big jump forward in my recovery was in getting angry at the messages that were around me that made me feel that way and realizing I wasn't shallow. I was being a good woman. I was being exactly who my culture had asked me to be. Disappear, have no voice, like evaporate into thin air and don't take anything from this world. Don't need anything. Don't desire. So if we can start by saying, of course we feel this way and look at the context we're in, that gives us a much better platform with which to do the work of sorting through the thoughts and the feelings and and the dialogue and the family dinners and all of that stuff, because we're, we're holding it in a, in hands of compassion where we are not seeing ourselves as broken, but connected to this world that has given us these messages. So what would you say is the, like the most formative part of how you view your body? It's, you know, you how brought up- I do or how people in general do. Um, I don't know, both, I guess. Now that you, <laughs> I meant how everyone in general, but yeah. now you, my curiosity as well. <laughs> yeah. So a more, the most formative piece, and would you say right now in this moment or in my development? In the development. Mm-hmm. I think that there was some messages that are, that are more explicitly given, like that I grew up in the church and I was told things like, um, your body is sinful. Your body is bad. It's a problem. Like your, your body is, will lead you astray. It's a liability. It's going to keep essentially like it could be the thing that keeps you out of heaven. And so there are some explicit messages like that, but then I think there are these implicit things that just slowly pull us apart from each other. Like when we're told in school, no, you can't go to the bathroom. Wait. So we get this message like, I have to go to the bathroom, ah, right? Teacher, 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 I have to go to the bathroom. And we have to ask permission of someone to pay attention to our bodies. I, yes, I understand why, like, there needs to be some structure to classrooms so that things can move a certain way. But we have systems all around us that pull us apart from each other. We are mm-hmm. praised when we lose weight. We are praised when we conquer a physical feat. And we're told, you know, mind over matter they have, there are all of these like really subtle linguistic things that show up in, in our dialogue that teach us we, we are more our thinking than we are our bodies and that that is good, that that is superior in some ways. So when I look back, I don't necessarily think of a specific moment that was influential in how I related to my body, but being in a context where I was rewarded for not listening pulled me apart from myself. Mm. And then when the eating disorder started for me, one of the things I've learned in studying eating disorders and in doing eating disorder treatment is that eating disorders aren't really about the body. The body is the avenue through which the pain makes itself known. 
but they're not about the body. They're about a sense of restricted agency and lack of control in a disembodied culture. Mm. And so when we have a sense of, uh, when we are lacking agency, which is to say we're lacking a sense of being able to act on the world or feel powerful or feel like we have a voice and that voice will be listened to and, and it matters, what do we do? Where do we turn to have that very human need? Well, we often turn on ourselves to create a, to make up for what we've been lacking out there. And we do to ourselves what everyone's told us to do to ourselves at the same time. So there's this mix of like, I'm going to control my body, but the reason I'm controlling my body is because I'm also being told that's good to do. Yeah. Oh. I'm like struggling the order in which to ask you questions because you, you can just tell what a, what a beast this whole conversation is mm -hmm. because I think so much about disembodiment and I think about um, in the Christian world, like you said, you're taught your flesh is evil. And in the secular world, you have Karl Lagerfeld saying nothing tastes as good as skinny feels so there is so much about self-control and, and I, for one, when I was anorexic, took a lot of pride in that self-control, which I think really speaks to what you're saying about us being rewarded for separating ourselves from our bodies in this way. Um, but I guess my question is, if we, how do we start planning a world where the next generation actually can live and reside in their body, but also somehow reject or be more discerning about the messages they're getting about what the world is telling them their body is supposed to look like. Yeah. And I think that they go hand in hand because we, and I'll, I'll answer your question more directly in a moment, but we are in a context we are, and this is what embodiment is. It's the experience of being a body subjectively, not just looking at ourselves from the outside, but living ourselves from the inside out, but in a social context that rewards certain things. But it's really easy to point at culture and say, culture is a problem. Look at these messages. Look at this media. This is so toxic, but culture is really just the proliferation of ideas or the like media is the proliferation of ideas that culture holds. And we as individuals make up culture. So we have a hand in changing it. We are responsible for creating or dismantling a context that hurts us. So I think that means that we are, we are thoughtful or we get thoughtful about how we engage with media. There is loads and loads of scientific research to show how media literacy can kind of inoculate us against problematic media images. And what that means is that we can look at images and really deconstruct them and see what's going on there. Uh, so if we were to see an ad, I, this is just one that I pops up to the top of my mind right now, but if we were to see an ad that is just a square that has a woman's elbow and a watch right above her elbow, and that's it, we can look at that and say, oh, wow, that's just a part of a woman's body huh, where's the rest of her? And we can go, oh, interesting. And that part of a woman's body is being used to sell a watch. Interesting. Oh, and it's a white, thin woman's body. Huh. 
I wonder what they're trying to say about the ideal body and what that gets you and how that's related to consumerism. So media literacy is the thoughtful engagement with media in a way that we can't be bamboozled by the implicit messages or images that, you know, that we see that represent one kind of body, but not another and do that consistently. Media literacy has us asking, well, where are the queer bodies? Oh, where are the the disabled bodies? Where are the fat bodies? Where are the aging bodies? How come that ad is only thin, young, white women? That doesn't make sense. That's only a very small section of the human experience. Where is the rest of everybody else? And why is that experience being privileged as somehow ideal? So when we engage with media literacy, things don't just passively come through. It's like we have a sieve over our minds and it's keeping out some of this really problematic content that otherwise just seeps into us. And then all of a sudden we, it shapes the way we feel about ourselves. I did read your chapter on uh, pornography or the portion on pornography. Mm -hmm. And I also heard you speak on pornography before as well. And it's really interesting because you and I are aligned and you've done so much more research into this than I have, but a lot of people have been making the case for at least pornography being a place where all body types and all races and ethnicities and all queer people seem to be welcome equally into that space. Yeah, I think it's important to add in the angle too of how we are fetishizing certain bodies. So yes, there might be certain bodies that are visible in a space where we're like, oh, look at that, that particular skin color or that particular presentation of a body. But when we're creating a fetish out of it in a way that dehumanizes a person, I feel comp I feel a complicated response in terms of like, I don't know if that's actually better. Here's this body type, but look at how we're using it as an object for the pleasure of a person who is in much more power in this situation. And look at the acts of violence that are being perpetrated against that body type. So to say like, oh, just because it's visible is of benefit minimizes what the the quality of the interaction communicates about power in that situation. And we know that when we're using pornography, it's not just a passively view. It's not, people aren't putting it on while they're like cooking dinner with the family. <laughs> it's a masturbation tool. Yeah. And whenever we're masturbating, what's happening is our brain is forming very powerful associations between pleasure of what's happening in our bodies and the images that we're seeing in front of us. And so because those messages get encoded implicitly there on a very, very deep neural level, they impact our subconscious value system. They impact how we walk out of the room and then treat the person that we do see on the street. So I think that when we're looking at images and, and there's a pleasure or a, a masturbation component of it, we have to be thoughtful too about not just, okay, yes, size or skin color or this presentation or this queer body, but how are they being treated? And not only how are they being treated in ways that I can see, but how are those actual people being treated? So I think it's a little bit more complicated than saying, yeah, that body's on the screen. That's okay. Check. I can do this and feel <laughs> morally good about it now. Yeah, no, I love that perspective. I appreciate that. I would also like to talk about the concept of strength. You talked for a mm -hmm. bit about women, you know, young girls playing sports and the concept that we're really strong for a girl, um, or even the idea that we had to sort of 
diminish or, or hide our own talents or strengths in this way because we didn't want to like show up the boys. Mm. Is that something that you see changing or you see a path to changing? How do we handle that? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a, this interacts with every other element of being human. And so if, if we're not feeling a sense of agency in our life, but we notice that people like us more when there is less of us, then that's going to, that's going to impact us in some way. And we're going to realize, Oh, this is how I can negotiate getting some power in this situation. And so I remember feeling really insecure growing up and there was this boy that I liked. And I remember feeling like, um, I got more attention and care from him when I faked being bad on my math assignments. And I could say like, oh, can you help me with this? Mean (laughs) girls, Lindsay Lohan. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. (laughs) And feeling like, oh, this is such an easy role to play. Mm. And so when I look at that, I can, when I look back, I can see not only, wow, how I was trying to negotiate power by playing dumb, but also why was I trying to get that attention in the first place from this person when I had to be less of myself? And where did I, before that point, get the idea that that was something that I could do? So we, I'm, I want to look at the whole mess of all of this and see how if we have been feeling like we are not good enough, but all of a sudden we feel good enough because somebody gives us praise for our bodies that's going to matter more to us than if we already felt good enough and someone praises us and we can be like, so, okay, that's cool that you think that, but that's actually not the most important part of me. So we got to look at confidence and context and messaging and power and how every choice that we make in a situation is available to us because of all sorts of things that we saw up until that point. I'm thinking about how differently I felt about all of these topics during my teens and 20s versus my 30s. Yeah. So what do you think it is about growing up or life that does help you shed these things if you're being really attentive to it? And I, mm-hmm. like you talk a lot about regaining your voice. I love this concept of like being smaller, shrinking, being quieter versus reclaiming these things about yourself. Mm -hmm. I think that, that we just have more experiences. And so we have a better sense of continuity of ourself across time. When you've just lived a little bit more life, sometimes this isn't always the case, but we get more experience of being like, wow, I can pick myself back up again. Or wow, my body can fluctuate. Like you've been through a pregnancy and then a postpartum period. And you've seen okay, my body changed, but there are still some things about myself that are very much the same or wow, because my body changed that changed how I see myself and how other people react to me. And when you have more experiences, you have a a greater volume of data with which to do analysis about who you are. (laughs) And I think we get, we get some stability in that too. And seeing, like I was mentioning, oh, oh, I've had some hard things happen but I can get through them. And so I can rely on this sense of inner quality of strength to negotiate the ability to go through hard things instead of relying just on other people's feedback about how my body looks. Again, Mm -hmm. I I don't want to diminish that because that's very effective in our culture. That is like the currency of how we get power. Like 
look ideal. In fact, we have all this research to show that how you look impacts what jobs you get and how people react to you and give you opportunities. And so to deny the reality of that in our culture would be to miss the miss that it's actually going on. But because as I was saying, we're part of culture, we get to decide how we want to engage with that and slowly peel ourselves back from continuing to perpetuate those stories within ourselves, which then shapes how we talk to our peers. And I think that for me, being in my 30s, is feel, it feels really different from my 20s because I've also done a lot of therapeutic work. I think about all, it wasn't just time that was passing. There were like, girl, hours and hours and hours and hours in therapy, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so it's not just like, oh, time passes, but like, what did you do at that time? And for me, I put a lot of time into reminding myself that who I am is good and lovable, regardless of what my body looks like and what people say about me. And that to me, I think it adds up that all of those hours, all of that time accumulates to a place where you can say, okay, I have this sturdy platform of confidence that I can stand on that because of all of that time, there's just, there's just more density to it. I'm going to be okay if something happens. Mm. I, I wanted to go back to the part of your earlier question, your previous question that I didn't answer, which is that I think we're as we're getting more vocal as women about the problematic narratives of women's bodies. And I think the me too movement was a really important part of that. It makes it easier to do that media literacy and start to see some of the things that previously had been unconscious to us. And so for, for girls, I, I think that as long as patriarchy exists, and as long as girls are told that their approval by by another person is what makes them valuable. There will always be this negotiating of power in ways that women are like, I'll be small so you can feel big and you feel better about yourself. And then you associate that with liking me. And that feels really good in this moment. But I think that what we have done, I'm just thinking even about like different campaigns and different organizations and different social media accounts that remind us wait a second, we don't have to participate in the disappearing story as women, that we can expand. And there is now space and language with which to, to do that. I think that there is more opportunity for, for girls to feel protected from the shrinking thing yeah. that most of us did or, or felt related to in some ways, better chance than maybe ever before. <laughs> I just had a flashback of I'm tall and in middle school and high school, I had terrible posture because I was trying so hard to not make the boys feel right. smaller than me. Right. Right. Yeah. Which Isn't is wild. Isn't yeah. It's so wild. And like, did someone tell you that? Like, no. oh, oh, right. Yeah. yeah. And so the question that we can ask ourselves is like, how did you learn that? And it, that we could point all around and say like it was, again, this is called the tripartite model, but the research shows us it's our parents and our media and our peers. And those, the things that we see or the, you know, what we hear in movies where it's like, oh, don't, don't date the short guy, go, boys don't like to whatever, or like, oh, a girl should feel petite in the arms of a man. There's all of this, like, it's really problematic like, stuff, but it, 
infiltrates into us. And then we just end up act, living it out and thinking, we're doing this great job at being a woman. We're doing this great job of, of like walking in these gender scripts, not even realizing we never chose them. They were just handed to us. How do we even begin to <laughs> move forward in this way? Because I've seen a bit of, um, I guess disembodiment is the, isn't the right thing, but disconnecting from your body in the opposite way, like hookup culture. I'm just going to then hook up with whoever I want, or I'm just going to eat everything I want and not even care. And, you know, like how do we find this balance between we are being healthy, but we are still, you know, getting some comfortability with how loud we might be, how big we might be, how strong our voice might be, or the different shape, size, color, whatever of the body that we are living this life through. Mm-hmm. It's such a, an, an important question to be asking. And I, I want to answer the question by directing us back towards embodiment, which is to say that our focus, as long as it's on image, is on missing the beauty and the complexity of being a body that appearance is only one element of our bodies. And in fact, it's in some ways the most obvious because it's the part that we've been trained to see the easiest to judge or to be judged by, but that is not actually the totality of our bodies. So moving inside and developing a relationship of care and trust with our physicality is I think the antidote to being um, problematically like, like you said, um, maybe reckless with our bodies, mm. but, um, yeah, cause I, I hear that continuum. And I think that if we are, if we are rebelling out of what we could say, like purity culture into hookup culture, uh, the extremes tend to not give us complexity and richness and fullness. They, the rebellion itself is often psychologically helpful because it reminds us, oh, we have range, we have choices, we have, there is another way of being and I've lived it and then I can work myself way back into the middle. But if we're going to try to not do that so much, I think it requires us to be uh, thoughtful and slow and mindful or what some people in the, in the field call body full, which is the kind of body based, what we would say, like awareness instead of mind based mm-hmm. awareness, mm-hmm. but to notice things like when we're hungry, just to start paying attention again, moving our attention out of preoccupation with our image into the inside. What, do, what does hunger feel like? How hungry am I totally hungry? Am I just a little bit hungry? or full? Am I tired? Can I honor my tiredness? Do I move in ways that, that feel free and satisfying to me? What does satisfaction in my body feel like? And then what we're doing is we're not, we're a little bit less likely, I would say, or maybe way less likely to swing because often what happens in the swing is I'm going to move from what this group of people told me is valuable two over here, which is I'm going to do what that other group of people told me to to do is valuable, but we're still not paying attention to ourselves from the inside out. We're just swapping who decides what's good about how we behave. Mm. And we're missing if we just swap. It's like, oh, this was the rules. 
now these are the rules and that, you know, they're, I feel rebellious because it's different than the old rules, but I'm still letting somebody else dictate what I do with my body. So moving awareness to the inside and, and practicing choice making for ourselves means, yeah, maybe I make some choices about my body this week or this year that I won't agree with in 20 years, but I'll know that they were my choices mm. instead of just a pushing against of somebody yeah. else's choices. Yeah. I love that. Well, speaking of the other, I feel a lot of insecurity can come from, you know, when you're younger, it's your peer group, but then when you're older, it's probably your partner. Or, you know, if you have multiple romantic or sexual partners, how do we go about maybe teaching people or, or thinking about choosing partnerships and even choosing romantic moments with people that are going to honor this process of embodiment we're on. I, th- I think your question is so important. And one of my responses is, I don't know if we should be in relationships with people who tear us down. I just think if we have to inoculate sure. <laughs> ourselves against their perspective, like, and this relationship is supposed to be edifying and safe and mutually enhancing and like a place that I go to be restored when the world is harsh and painful, like if that person, if the person that we are closest to or if the people we are letting in are not respectful and are not for our flourishing, I don't think they should be in our lives. I think we should find other partners. <laughs> but then maybe a more nuanced perspective is to say that we can remind ourselves in imperfect moments or moments when the person that we are with or connected to is responding to us out of a place of pain or their fear that we remember that that's a reflection of them and their inability to handle what's going on for them in that moment and not necessarily us. Mm. And that we always get to think critically. I don't think that there is a person or place or context in which our critical thinking is supposed to come off the shelf. I mean, there are some situations where it becomes a defensive strategy. Like we're always trying to find holes in something, but I would say if you ever feel like um, you're in a relationship where you are being asked to go along with something that feels incongruent for you, like listen to that sense of incongruence that that's your wisdom. That's the spirit telling you there's something that doesn't feel right here. And not that we want to be reactionary in response either. And like, just, you know, rip into other people, but that, that incongruence tells us, let's be thoughtful here. Maybe if I have to keep finding out how to protect myself from the person that's closest from me, this is not a person that should be so close to me because we want to let into our, like I'm, I'm putting my arms around here. Like I'm creating this circle around myself. We want to create this boundary around ourselves where the most, the most intimate people with us are people that deserve to be there that have earned our trust and that are going to treat us in such a way that allows us to keep unfolding in the world instead of people we need to put barriers up against. Yeah. There's just so much wisdom in you. I love it. And again, there's so many different ways of thinking about this. I also heard you speak of the vagus nerve Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I know Mm -hmm. it lights you up. Oh yes, it does. (laughs) For anyone not watching, (laughs) Hillary's whole face just like that. Yeah. I would love for you to talk about the vagus nerve because I think that's one of the main first steps people could take to really like practicing embodiment and recognizing when they are 
living a script that no longer works for them or that never did and they have to flee. So whether you have heard about it or not, the vagus nerve is one of the things in our body that's responsible for the fight or flight response, which activates us to give us energy to say, hey, there's something about what's going on right now that feels unsafe. And there are a few steps involved in the vagus nerve response to stress. If a threat comes up, then our first response is often to say, hey, can you stop, right? This is a the social engagement system. And then we have fight or flight after that, if the social engagement system doesn't work. And after fight or flight, if that doesn't work, we have a kind of shut down response. And so the vagus nerve is really just the, the information superhighway that connects our brain and the memory storage systems of our bodies with the activation to tell us, I don't think that this moment feels good or feels safe. And so when we're starting to do embodiment work, it really is about, like I mentioned, slowing down and paying attention. And our bodies will tell us, again, because of the nervous system stress responses that we have, I don't like how this feels. And it's our job to say, okay, what am I going to do about that? Am I going to Am I going to pay attention to that? Am I going to get out of a situation that feels unsafe? Or am I going to try to shove it down because it feels more important to belong to these people? And so we can start to just pick apart the cues that our bodies are giving us when we're noticing feeling really safe with someone, asking yourself, what does that safety feel like? And can I let myself really experience that safety? Or sometimes noticing the need to shut down when we have no energy, when we can barely get out of bed, and we notice it happens to be right before we're actually supposed to go do that thing with that specific person. Mm -hmm. like, what is our body telling us about what it's like to be in relationship with that person? So we have this, we have this wisdom in us that tells us there's something that feels right, there's something that doesn't feel right. And actually the reason why those messages come up is not because of some abstract criteria, but every experience that we've had up into that moment, up into that moment and how our brain has categorized it as either safe or unsafe. So if we go into a situation and we all of a sudden feel like we're panicking and something feels unsafe, it's probably because there's a reminder in the environment, conscious or unconscious, that's saying, this is like something that hurt you before. And sometimes what we're experiencing in the present moment isn't unsafe. It's just reminding us something that felt unsafe in the past. So this is where we want to do like embodiment, really the mind body integration piece of asking ourselves, okay, does this feel scary because it reminds me of something scary in the past or because it's actually dangerous and slowing down and getting to know our cues and how we write our heart races or how we feel uncomfortable or how we feel safe just tells us more about who we are and gives us more information to make really good choices about how we want to be in relationship and in the world around us. Mm, love that. I think for people who are working to recover from eating disorders, it's, it's pretty rare that we develop eating disorders on our own without some sort of social information or feedback and without there also being an overwhelming amount of pain on the inside that can't be managed otherwise. I'd mentioned earlier that eating disorders are often disorders of restricted agency, but another way to classify them is disorders of emotional dysregulation, which means we don't know how to be with our feelings. We, we feel too much and we feel overwhelmed or we feel shame or we feel something on the inside of us that we don't know how to be with. And so we use changing our body and managing food 
as a way to get something. So often for people who are really just starting down the road of recovery, I think an important question can be, what purpose has this served? How, how has it helped me manage feelings or not feelings? What has it gotten me? And, and looking for somebody to do that journey with you. I think eating disorders, unlike a lot of other psychological issues, also come with a lot of complex physiological and biomedical complications. And it's super important to be followed by your doctor, be followed by a therapist who's working closely with your doctor so that you don't create irreparable damage that that really impairs your quality of life for a long time. I think one thing that comes to me is how difficult it was to reach out for help when I had an eating disorder because I was so afraid that I would get help and then I would no longer have an eating disorder. How do you overcome that? Yeah, I think that the part that of us that knows I want more for myself gets to be the one that reaches out and gets us into that room. And if you're with someone who's qualified, they're going to help you manage all of the stuff that comes up along the way. In fact, for me, the eating disorder, I would, um, I would say I was ready to be without it way longer, way for a long time before I actually gave it up because I was so, it was so tightly wound into my identity and my sense of power and control and goodness that even though I didn't feel like I needed it anymore to manage experiences in my life that were otherwise overwhelming, I loved it. And that's like the language that we use in eating disorders is the friend and the foe. It gets us something and it hurts us. Mm. And so a lot of times when people are going in for treatment or going in to get help, it's because the part of them that's saying, this hurts me is now outweighing the part that says, but it also gets me this. And this also feels good about it. And when that part of us is crying out, even just to get that part of us, what it needs, I think it's important to get in the door and trust that the person who's sitting across from you is going to help you to deal with that complicated tension on the inside that says, right, but I don't want to give this up. There's a totally normal feeling to have. Yeah. That's beautiful that you're letting the, the hurt part be heard more loudly and clearly. That's, and that, yeah, that sounds like true self-love right there. Absolutely. That the part that goes crying out the loudest is the one, is the one that needs the care. Yeah. If we could, I'd love to end on the concept of helping our daughters maintain their voice. Mm. I don't have a daughter, but I, um, I feel like all of these things are so interconnected. I don't know. I'm sure you would agree with me being that, you know, the body is so involved in absolutely everything, but a huge part of that, I think I've just noticed different body responses. Like when I speak out and up, or if I have a broken heart, I have a really intense period, for example, like I've noticed connections between these two things. And I've also noticed the difference in my body when I'm silent versus when I'm speaking out and doing what I have to do. And I think that even if we don't have daughters, it's like, how do we help our sisters maintain Mm -hmm. their voice? How do we help our friends keep their voice? Yeah. I think the, maybe just a snippet, a little takeaway is when we see people using their voice, we praise them, we celebrate them, we thank them for modeling for us what having a, a knowing and speaking it up looks like. So often enough, I have friends who are like, I really want to do that thing. I'm feeling overwhelmed. 
I'm going to set a boundary. I'm going to decide not to come to the event tonight. I mean, this is all pre-coronavirus when people were (laughs) gathering, but I would say, thank you so much for setting a boundary because it gives me the courage to know I can set a boundary with you too, and that that will be respected. So when we see people using their voice and speaking up and saying, this doesn't feel right, yes, we can nuance the how of that later, but I think we first need to rush in and say, thank you so much for speaking up. Thank you for setting that boundary. Thank you for using your voice. I'm learning so much from you about how to use my voice by watching you. And I know that when I've had women who are older than me say that to me, has made me feel so empowered. Like I am part of this network of people who are, are changing what it means to be a human, changing the cultural scripts. So I think we have a responsibility to do that for generations that come after us. I mean, I don't have a daughter, but I think of myself as, myself as needing to mother the next generation well by saying, I see you, you matter, use your voice. It helps me expand and grow too. I love that. Beautiful. Thanks so much, Brenda. Would you tell everyone where they can buy the book and find you online? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram, Hillary Leanna McBride, or on Twitter, Hillary L. McBride. Uh, I have a website, HillaryLMcBride.com. And you can find, I've got a couple books out there, should be available on Amazon. And now's a good time to support local bookstores. So if my first book, Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image is not in your local bookstore, just ask them to order it in. And most of the time they will. (laughs) Beautiful. Love that. All right. We love you all so much. God bless.